Father, we come to this place in our, in our time of worship where we, we study and we want to give our attention and our thoughts to you and ask you to speak to us. And uh, we do this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. This morning, we're launching into a new series, and it's about the, uh, the amazing power of commitment in the life of a human being. Because making a commitment does release, in a way, an amazing power. Uh, part of the nobility, you could say, of being a human being is being able to make commitments and keeping them, honoring those commitments. What's interesting, though, is the time in which we live. Our world is a um, keep our options open. It's a world where, you know, always have an exit strategy, kind of a, a way of living. Uh, never get tied down. That's the kind of world, the kind of culture that we live and move in. And because of that, a lot of people in our world try pretty hard to avoid commitments, whether that's uh, making commitments to people or, or friends or children or even to God, whatever. Sometimes we think life is just going to be easier and simpler with fewer and fewer commitments. Commitment can be a scary word. Probably nobody else ever hears this, but sometimes with our adult children, uh, we have a conversation that will go sort of like this. We'll say, hey, would you like to come over to dinner and, and uh, enjoy dinner with us uh, Friday night? And the response back will be a little bit tepid. It'll be, well, yeah, 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 we, that, that sounds good. We'll think about that and we'll let you know you know, kind of a response, sort of a, yeah, that sounds good if we can't find a better option, you know. Um, and of course, this happens in our culture with bigger commitments, uh, commitments like this. Do you want to get married? Well, not sure. You know, maybe, maybe it's a good option. Uh, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to commit financially to tithing? Do you want to join a church and become a part of community and have responsibilities toward them and they toward you? Do you want to commit to only marrying someone who shares a like faith? Oh, well, let me think about that. Do you want to volunteer some of your time to serve others? That is your precious time serving others. Now, I get the fact that making a commitment, a commitment of any kind, small, even big, can be scary because a commitment is a promise about the future, isn't it? I mean, that's what a commitment is. But in the future, things might change. So, you know, what if I promise to marry you, but then I change or you change and I'm not so sure I want to marry you anymore? What if I promise to be your friend, but then we, we kind of have a falling out and now I'm not sure I really want to be your friend anymore? What if I promise to follow God, but tomorrow I'm not sure I feel like following God or I'm not even sure I believe that God exists? You see, another word for uncommitted, and this is a word that we love. Our culture absolutely loves and worships and obsesses over this idea. And that idea is freedom. I have to be free. And so we think as long as I'm committed, well, then I'm free to, you know, see whoever I want, eat whatever I want, do whatever I want, buy whatever I want, say whatever seems useful, experience anything that seems like something I'd like to experience. I'm free. And the way to be free is to avoid commitment. There is, however, another way to look at this. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. That is to say this, that commitment makers, commitment keepers will experience a kind of freedom that commitment avoiders will never know. And I want to kind of develop that thought. There's a Christian writer, his name is G.K. Chesterton. If you've ever read anything of his, he's really quite a brilliant individual. He wrote a fabulous essay where he said this. He said, the man who makes a vow makes an appointment with himself at some distant time or place. And the point is this. 
The point is that in the act of commitment, I bind myself to a future moment, to pursuing a particular future outcome. Uh, For example, I'm not free to eat mass quantities of Cheetos because I've made a commitment at a future date to weigh a certain amount, you see. Or I'm not free to love another woman because I've made a commitment to this woman and I plan to keep that commitment right on into the future. Or I'm not free to spend a certain uh, sum of money because I've made a commitment with that money to do something with it. Or I'm not free to follow another God all because of my commitments. And yet somehow commitments like this lead to deeper freedoms, deeper places of fulfillment, deeper places of joy, deeper places of purpose than the options open lifestyle of a commitment phobic world. And I'm just saying, keeping your options open, that kind of a lifestyle doesn't really lead to a better place. In other words, it's the commitment maker who gains freedom to really love. And the ability to really grow and experience real community and real meaning precisely because of the kinds of commitments they make. The commitment avoider, however, becomes kind of a slave to whatever desires come along at any given moment, any given day, to a life of small and petty choices because most of their choices are not even well considered. Most of the choices are driven mostly by personal desires, personal preferences, You know, never more nobler things like honor or faithfulness or loyalty or love of truth or love for other people. Mostly driven by love for myself. Now, Jesus talks about this quite a bit, actually. He said about himself one time, he said, for even the son of man did not come to be served. That's an interesting statement. That would be personal freedom, wouldn't it? If I I came in order for you to serve me, that would be about my personal freedom, my comfort, my joy. But Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Um, The freedom is not to do what I want, but to do what I am called to do or what is purposefully given for me to do. He says he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the love of others, you see, is what guided Jesus in the commitments that he made. Jesus also said this. He said, "If, if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciples. That's interesting. That's talking about commitments. And then he says, you will know the truth, and the truth, he says, will set you free. So knowing the truth and being committed to the truth has something to do with actually setting a person free. He goes on to say, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if you make decisions that are strictly, solely selfish, and they're all about you and just what you want, that is actually going to be a sinful thing to do, and it's going to actually lead to slavery. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what we would really think. But Jesus is saying here in John 8, in other words, if you commit yourself to obedience to my teaching, that will actually lead you into freedom to be the person that God has made you to be. And that's the best person you can be. And if you think you're free to do just whatever it is that you want, to pursue any passion or any desire or any pleasure or any self-centered goal, go ahead. What you'll find is that very often the things that we pursue come down to, come to actually own us. We find ourselves in slave, slavery to these things. But making a commitment to the right things, that's what Jesus did. He was committed to fulfilling his father's will and purpose for his life, which meant serving others. That's the language he used. It actually meant dying 
course. But this is what drove Jesus, commitments like this. And in the end, it's so funny. Yes, it did lead to Jesus dying, but it also led to his resurrection. And then it led to having incredible worldwide, across the centuries impact. Friends, making the right commitment in the right spirit to the right person or cause or value is one of the noblest things that a human being can do. And this is why human beings are actually drawn to the idea of making noble commitments. It's funny, we, we, we kind of don't want to make them and yet we're kind of drawn to them. You know, the call goes out, who will join up to fight the enemy? And over the centuries, whenever a call like that has gone out, young men and young women have generally responded and rallied to that cry in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people giving their life for a cause they believed in. Who will risk their life and go rescue the individual who needs rescuing? And again and again, people sign up. I'll go do that at the risk of my own life. I will do that. That's a noble cause. Who will accept the challenge of going to the North Pole, the South Pole, the Moon, Mars, whatever it is? Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. We love giving ourselves, really, to noble causes. And we alone of all creatures, all the creatures that God made are made in the image of a commitment-making, commitment-keeping God. Only human beings can do this. Think about it. Only human beings can make a promise. Only human beings can say, okay, I'll meet you next Tuesday. Okay, I will serve on that team with you and we'll serve together. Okay, I will keep the secret that you're giving me. Okay, I will be your friend. I will pray for you. I will have your back. You can count on me. Now, a dog can't make that promise. If they could, they would, and they would die to keep it, but they can't. A cat can, can't make that promise. If they could, they would, and then they would break it, and they would laugh in your face, that quiet cat kind of laugh. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, and I love cats, but, you know, that's the truth about cats. You see, people who follow God, now, now hear me say this, people who follow Jesus are commitment-making people. Being a disciple means you will make commitments. And not just that, but people who follow God make what look from the outside to be outrageous commitments. Relationally, financially, in the use of their resources, their time and so. And they do it with fierce joy. And we're going to look at one such person today. And then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the incredible power of God-powered commitment in our lives, in our relationships, in our finances. And so, and then the, the last week of this series, we're going to look at God's commitment to us, which is remarkable. I doubt that many of us realize very often just how committed God is to us. And we're going to look at that together. For today, though, I want to invite you to consider your deepest commitments. What are they? Do you know what they are? Your deepest commitments. What are your unbreakable commitments? Do you have some? I hope you do. In a book in the Old Testament called 1 Kings, there's a prophet named Elijah, and he's coming to the end, the near end of his ministry, and so he's looking for a replacement. And this is what we read. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, his mantle. 
And Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? And this is, understand, a very dramatic moment is what's happening here. Elijah is an old man, uh, and he is standing in or around the edges of the field, and there are lots of people, lots of people plowing. Eleven pair of oxen go by him. And then as the 12th pair makes its way by him, it's Elisha plowing and and Elijah walks up to Elisha and he takes off his mantle, which was either a scarf type of thing or it could have also been a loose fitting sleeveless type of cloak. And the mantle was a symbol, however, of Elijah's calling. It was a symbol of Elijah's ministry, his office, his work. And he throws his mantle on Elisha. And the meaning was real clear in that culture. He was saying, Elisha, God has a job for you. Leave all of this and take up my job. Take my mantle upon yourself. And this leaves out a lot of details. It's kind of vague. If I were thinking about this, if I were Elisha, I'd want to know, you know, what's the, is there a health care plan? You know, what does the vacation package look like? If Elisha is going to be a prophet and Elijah uh, is already a prophet, is there some kind of profit sharing plan? I wasn't sure if you would boo on that or laugh. I really wasn't sure. That was mostly a laugh, I think. That was mostly a laugh. You shouldn't have laughed. It deserved a boo, I would say. But here's the thing. We know Elisha, Elisha has 12 teams of oxen plowing in this field. Must have been a huge field. And what that means in that economy is that Elisha is a person of staggering wealth. Staggering wealth. In other words, he has options, as wealthy people often do. He has possibilities. He has a real bright future. He is the golden boy, if you will. He can marry any girl in the village he wants. He can buy anything he wants. He can travel anywhere he wants to travel. And here he's being offered the remarkable opportunity to leave all of that behind to follow a penniless prophet preacher. He's being offered a life of opposition Because the people at this time in the history of Israel, they oppose the prophets. He's being offered a life of danger. He's being offered a life of sacrifice. And he's being offered a chance to know God's love and provision and purpose like few people ever do. What's he going to do? Should he seize this commitment? Should he make this commitment? It's a costly commitment. He certainly, humanly speaking, has more exciting things that he could be doing, more uh, self-fulfilling things, more comfortable things, more pleasures that he could seek. If he says no, what's he going to do? And then there's this very dramatic moment. Elisha has one request. He says, let me go kiss my mother and father goodbye, and then I will come to you. It's a reasonable request, is it not? Seems reasonable to me. And Elijah's response is, it's kind of edgy. You kind of scratch your head and go, what the, what's, it, what's he saying here, you know? He says, go ahead, what have I done to you? And really what he's getting at, you can kind of hear the wheels turning, I think, in Elijah's mind. Elijah's thinking, oh brother, here it comes. When he goes back to mommy and daddy, they're going to remind him of the trust fund and the keys to all the cars and the vacation homes. And do you have any idea what you're leaving behind, son? He's going to bail. I'll probably never see him again, Elijah thinks. 
But Elijah does something here that's important. Anytime anyone is considering some kind of serious commitment, it's important to give them space. And Elijah gives Elisha space. Always important. He says to him, you must decide. You know, a good church will do that with people when it comes to Jesus and following him. I mean, it's always, it's your decision, is it not? And Elisha does this. Elijah does this for Elisha. You must decide. And Elisha does decide. Uh, He says, yes. (laughs) Remarkably, he says, yes, yes to God. Elisha comes back and he says to Elijah, I'm all set. There's just a couple more things I need to do. And at that point, you think, oh, brother, okay, when here comes all the caveats. Well, I'll go if. I'll do that if. But that's not what happens. It says this. It says, he took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became, a great word, his servant. He becomes a servant. So he comes back to Elijah and he's all in. I mean, that's the picture here. He's not dinking around with this. He takes his two oxen and he sacrifices them to the Lord. It's Elisha's way of saying... I'm all in, every part of me. I'm wholly and fully committed to this. And he decides to turn this sacrifice of his into a party for all the people. And he gives the meat to them to eat. Do you have any idea how many people you can feed with two whole oxen? Hundreds of people. Hundreds of people are involved here. And they are now part of Elisha's commitment. They are his witnesses, so to speak. And I'll tell you, one of the best things that you can do when you are serious about keeping a commitment is go public with it. Have others witness it. Have others testify. You're doing a good thing. We back you in this. And that's what Elisha was doing. He has witnesses now. And as if kissing his parents goodbye and killing his oxen and offering a sacrifice and going public isn't enough, he does one more thing. You probably noticed it. He burns the plow. This is an expensive piece of equipment. This is agriculture at its finest, at its pinnacle point in that day. And he uses the plow to cook the meat that is his sacrifice. And so, again, you get what that means. No going back. I cannot return to my old life. I have burned the plow. And so later when Elijah leaves him and Elisha is all alone, he can't go back. He has burned the plow. And later, and if you know anything about the life of Elisha, this happens when the king wants to kill him, when the Arameans have surrounded him and they too want to kill him, when the famine is starving him, when Israel rejects him and his message, the one thing he knows is, I can't go back. I have burned the plow on this one. This is a commitment I cannot and will not break. There is no retreat, no going back. And I'll tell you what, friends, that is commitment. Plow burning commitment. Some of you will have heard this story. In 1519, there was a Spanish conquistador, Hernan Cortez, landed in Veracruz, Mexico, to win glory in the, in the new world. And he came with 500 soldiers. That's a picture of him, snapshot. Uh, 500 soldiers, 100 sailors on 11 ships. And when they landed, his men were filled with all kinds of uncertainty and fear. In fact, they weren't exactly sure or confident that this was a great idea. 
because they knew very little about this part of the world. And uh, so to kind of counter that fear, that anxiety, uh, as the story goes, uh, Cortez gave the order, burn the ships. In other words, uh, going back isn't an option. We will succeed or we will die is the idea. We will flourish or we will perish here, but we will not run away. We are fully committed, burn the ships. Now, this story gets told a lot by motivational speakers. I bet a lot of you have heard it uh, because, you know, it, it really motivates people, this idea of burning the ships. But because we're a church and we care a little bit about the truth and things like that, I have to tell you the whole truth on this story. They didn't actually burn the ships. I don't know how the story got told that way, but they never, never burned the ships. Uh, what, they, what they did is they scuttled the ships which meant they put some holes in the bottom, which caused the ships to sink and settle, uh, but they didn't disappear out of sight because they brought them up into shallow, shallower waters. And this meant that if they needed to, they could, they could patch those holes and they could pump the water out and they would have use of these ships. What's more, uh, one of the ships they didn't uh, scuttle because uh, they wanted to be able to take some treasure back to Spain and maybe some of the leaders too if things didn't go too well. You can imagine and so it turns out that Cortez wasn't all that nice to the Aztecs. In fact, he slaughtered them. He was there to get gold. Cortez was there for all the wrong reasons, personal glory, greed, gold, power. And this is important to know because we're not here to glorify the idea of commitment. If commitment is attached to the wrong thing, it can do all kinds of damage in your life and in the lives of everybody around you. I mean, for example, if an NFL football player has an overpowering commitment to win the Super Bowl, whatever he takes, but whatever it takes, but he has no commitment whatsoever to his wife and children, well, that's not good. It's a commitment that's going to negatively affect other things that ought to, he ought to have an even greater commitment to. That commitment is going to hurt him. It's going to hurt his family. If a business person has an unquenchable commitment to his or her success, success at any price, but little or no commitment to their family, that's not good. That's actually idolatry. Because understand, ultimate commitment to a non-ultimate value, something like money, something like power, something like personal comfort, ultimate commitment to a non-ultimate value is idolatry. And it will destroy you if not immediately, eventually. But on the other hand, when a human being makes an outrageous commitment to a noble calling of following Jesus, when an ordinary human being says, I don't care how hard it gets, I don't care how high the cost, I am not going back, I am not turning around, I have charbroiled the ox. I have kissed off the trust fund. I have given up the keys. The ships are smoking in the harbor. I have burned the plow. When a human being does that, a power gets released on this earth beyond human capacity and incredible kingdom things happen. They always do. And so church, I'm asking you, where is God calling you to burn the plow? What commitment is God calling you to make? Could be in many, many, many different areas. Could be in the area of telos or purpose. What is your purpose for living? 
Is your purpose for living to make money? So that you can live more comfortably or have more power or gain more recognition? If so, you are committed to the wrong thing. Your purpose should not be to make more money. It should be to make more of a difference. If you're a Jesus follower, to make more of a difference in the name of Jesus. Let God guide you so that regardless of the money you have, be it a a large amount or a small amount, regardless the recognition you get, regardless your comfort level, your purpose is to use all you have, your gifts, your ability, your resources to love and serve others for the sake of Jesus Christ, for his glory alone. You see, that is a purpose worth dying for. That's a purpose worth burning the plow. And I would ask you again, where is God calling you to burn the plow? Is there a commitment that he wants you to make? Maybe it's in your relationships or your sexual life. We live in a pick-up, hook-up culture. Having sex with someone is no big deal. Um, I can't believe I, I watched a TV series. I won't mention which one it was. You'd be shocked that a pastor was watching it. But... Uh, the, uh, I, I watched part of a whole season and it started out first six episodes. I thought I found very entertaining and engaging and so on. And then episode, episode seven, wham, did it take a 180 turn. Sex, um, drugs, addiction, was just unbelievable to me. And it all portrayed as legitimate lifestyle choices. And uh, I mean, I know this, but I mean, I'm, I, when I'm... I had to watch the next eight episodes, and um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, but, but I really, it, it was actually shocking, the degree to which uh, anyone watching this series would, would, would be receiving the message that these lifestyle choices are fine, they're, they're normal, they're good, sex outside, it doesn't matter, just doesn't matter. It's just a fun recreational activity, everybody does this. But here's the thing, friends. Do you know the one who invented sex? The one who knows exactly what sex is for? The one who knows exactly the best context for sex? Says that without commitment, without marriage, it's not good for you. It will actually hurt you. If not immediately, then eventually. You'll pay an emotional, spiritual personal price and so he calls us those of us who follow Jesus to make a commitment and to say you know I'm burning the plow on this I'm not going to be sexually intimate with a person outside of the commitment the bond the covenant of marriage that's the right context for good sex amen Deer Creek Church said good sex is Never mind, when am I going to go there? You said amen. Maybe, uh, maybe you're married, and that relationship has been kind of shaky. You know, when Holly and I got married a uh, long time ago, we had several sessions of premarital counseling, probably a lot of you did, where you talk about money and in-laws and how to fight and conflict and parenting and what your goals are and divisions of labor and all that kind of stuff. At one point, the guy who was counseling us, Dr. James Hurley, asked us this. He said, well, what will you do if one morning you wake up and you just don't have those feelings of love for each other anymore? 
And we said something stupid like, oh, our, our love is so special and so magical. Our feelings of love will never change. They're just they're never going to go away. Um, there are very few couples that can communicate as well as we do. Uh, <laughs> That might happen with other couples, but not us. You know, our feelings will only grow more special and more magical along the way. The very idea that you would stay with somebody just out of commitment is repugnant to us. And the counselor kind of looked at us, somewhat bemused, and he said, yeah, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> and now after being married almost 40 years, it'll be 40 years in June, and discovering that I have many creative ways of damaging a marriage. And yet Holly keeps loving me. Do you know how? She honors her commitment. She burned the plow. Now honoring your commitment in a marriage doesn't mean, don't, don't misunderstand me, doesn't mean you play the role of a martyr. Oh, this is going to be miserable, but I'll stay in it. No, 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 no. It doesn't mean saying, oh, what a noble human being I am to continue with a scoundrel like you. No, 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 no. It means making a thousand little commitments all along the way that are powered by God because that's the only way to do them. And where you say, okay, I'll listen. I'll serve. I'll fight honestly. I'll make up. I won't use things like the internet inappropriately. I won't cross healthy boundaries with others. I won't go escaping into a bottle or using a drug. I'm committed to working together on this relationship. And if we get stuck, we'll go together. Or at least I will go to talk to someone who can help us out of this stuckness. I made a promise for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, I'll burn the plow. And, I, you know, if you're married, have you burned the pile? You know, maybe your commitment is in the area of just parenting. Boy, there's a tricky thing. Whew. I was reading a book about corporate mission uh, statements, and it made an interesting claim. The author said this. The author said, the corporation has become in our day what the family used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. I wanted to say, no, it hasn't. That is never going to happen. In a company, if you get a pink slip and you go to your supervisor, you say, wait, whoa, 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 you can't do this. I'm family. He'll say, no, you used to be family. Now you're fired. <laughs> right? In a good family, you can't get fired. That's one of the differences between a family and a company. It always will be. What makes a family a family, too, is not the birth of a child. What makes a family a family is a promise. It's a commitment. I'm your dad, I'm your mom, you might do bad stuff, you might betray my values, you might not even follow the God that I love and follow, you might break my heart, but I'm still your dad and I will never ever stop loving you. And maybe work or disappointment or anger or busyness has been causing you to break your promise as a mom or a dad. Maybe you've gotten a little lax on your commitment to help your children know God and see God at work in their life, to be a part of a spiritual community where those things are celebrated, talked about. You know, we have so many people here at Deer Creek who give time, give their resources, give their energy, who they've just committed themselves to be part of a spiritual community, a church where through our children's ministry, your children can be a part of a little group. We have people down there right now meeting in little groups with some of your children. Why? Well, they want to serve Jesus and they want to serve your children and they want to serve your family. 
They want your children to know who loves them, to help them know the love of God. Maybe you need to make a commitment to put a stake in the ground and say, you know what, every week this matters. And I'm going to be here and make sure my kids are here to take advantage of that. Maybe that commitment has been getting a little loose and it's time to kind of burn the plow. We, uh, I was talking to one of our workers in our children's ministry who prays for all of the kids that she teaches week to week to week. She prays for them. And she said one of the things she prays for the most is that the kids would be consistent, that she would have a consistent opportunity to speak into their lives. And I thought, whoa, wow. You know, she's pretty remarkable. That's pretty, pretty cool um, that we have a teacher who wants to speak into the lives uh, so passionately for the love of Jesus. <laughs> That's what she's praying about. Wow. You know, or, or maybe uh, like Elisha, God is calling you to make your life an act of service, calling you to serve in some way, shape, or form. Serve others. I'll tell you what, I guarantee you, if you do that, if you learn to serve God by serving others, if you learn to follow God with your resources, if you learn to give your life away for Jesus' glory and not your own, I guarantee you, your life will be literally overflowing with purpose. Jesus made this paradoxical observation, and he made it actually many times. He said, whoever finds his life, that means pursues his own life, his own passions, his own pleasures, his own, you know, whoever finds his life, he says, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wow, that's upside down. <laughs> he said another time, for whoever wants to save his life, that's the most important thing, he said, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me, he says, will find it. Another time he said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, the message about me, he said, we'll save it. But if you live saying, you know, I'm not committed to anything but me, I just want to keep my time, my energy, my money, my resources, my career freed up for me. Friends, it's so strange how so many people who live for that kind of freedom get to the end of their lives and they can't remember what they did with all that money they were free to make and spend. And they can't remember how they used all of that time that they were so busy protecting, right? And they can't remember what even happened to all those relationships that they were so free to exit. In the end, <laughs> where, they, where they didn't, have to commit to anything, they ended up with a life committed to nothing. You see, it is not in our freedom, but in our commitments that we find ourselves. So again, question, what are you committed to? What are you committed to? Unconditionally committed to. Now, <laughs> I can well imagine, because as I was thinking this through, I felt sick about myself. <laughs> Um, gosh, when somebody challenges someone with things like this, I, I mean, I felt so terribly challenged. I, you may be thinking I'm, uh, I'm inadequate, you know, when you start talking to me about commitments and commitment keeping. And I've blown it so, 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 so many times. Well, welcome to the club here, right? I mean, that's all of us here. And here's the deal. Look at this table in front of us. It's a table of grace. 
Our God is a commitment-keeping God, and we're going to explore that in several weeks. He's a commitment-keeping God so that when we fail and when we fall down on our commitments, which we do all the time, um, he enables us to get back up because of this thing called grace. When we fall down and we fail in our commitments, he does not fail in the least in his commitments to us. He keeps his commitments. Even at the cost of dying on the cross, he pays for our sin.